Welcome to the podcast of New City Church. We hope this podcast inspires you on your journey of inward and outward transformation. Please join us on Sundays. You can find more information on our website, grownewcity.church. God bless you. Today, uh, we're going to go and dive into a really important topic that uh, was brought up in the news this week. New City Church is always trying to be responsive to current events, amen? Because we're not just like, we can talk about the gospel on Sunday and not ha- be listening to what is happening on Monday through Saturday, but rather we believe that the the message of God, the good news of God is so powerful that it can speak to every single part of our week, and that includes even difficult current events. And so uh, this week we are going to uh, be talking about the leaked Supreme Court statement that is uh, saying that Roe v. Wade, which is the legal oversight that helps protect the legalization of abortion, uh, that is going to be struck, so says this leaked document, and so we are going to be diving into that today. I just want to name that this is a uh, very difficult topic for a lot of folks, that there might be some trauma in folks' bodies, and so can we just, uh, especially for the on-site community, can we just all give permission that if you're feeling like a certain kind of way, or if you need a little break, the lobby's right there, there's a well-functioning water fountain for you to just be able to take some time. What we don't want to do is for your body to be having a reaction and then you have to stuff that down while you're in church, right? Because that is just kind of contributing to the re-traumatization. So can we just all kind of snaps together that if you're feeling something, totally fine to stand up and go in the lobby. Also, real talk, like people do that all the time because they have like a phone call or (laughs) because they uh, wanted to stretch their legs. So it's not even, I know it feels like a big thing when you're experiencing it, but it is totally just uh, part of being community together. So we're totally welcoming that. Um, And some of you uh, who have been with New City for a second might remember that I did preach on um, abortion rights this past December. Uh, If you go to grownewcity.church slash worship, on the top there is that archive uh, link. And that archive link on the very bottom, if you keep scrolling down, uh, has a sermon called Advent and Abortion Rights. And in that sermon, I uh, talked about some um, research that I had done around the topic. And uh, we started with a premise that uh, of the question of what does this mean for women, especially black and indigenous women, queer people, undocumented people, and the poor. Because as a church that centers marginalized voices, our first question is like, what impact does do these policies have on the folks who are already the most uh, forgotten and, and um, displaced by our policy? And, and then expanding our discourse from there. And what we found, and I I won't go into detail for this um, because we have a testimony that will talk a little bit about this and we also um, have an archive page where you can relive it yourself. What we found is that banning abortion has disproportionate impacts for black women as well as the queer community, undocumented women, and the poor. Uh, we, uh, there's research that directly links, um, abortion policy and economic developments in, uh, in these communities. There's research that directly links abortion policy and high school graduation rates, poverty rates, um, et cetera, uh, infant mortality rates, medical, uh, research, and all of that is swept up in this conversation of what it means to create sound abortion policy. I also said in that sermon that uh, the Bible does not mention abortion. The Bible does mention infanticide, which is not abortion. Like the Bible does talk about, you know, like something like Hagar who had like a child 
who is like a separate like child and uh, and 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 there's some the conversation around that but that's infanticide which is different from uh, abortion which is talking about um, like the very early stages of cellular formation of of um, life in a womb so uh, uh, so I those are things that I talked about in previous sermons that you are welcome to check out um, as we were getting ready for this sermon topic, though, we really felt like it's important that as part of our Centering Marginalized Voices that we ask the community for folks uh, who have stories that may be more directly related to abortion rights. And so uh, we are, we kind of sent out a call this week in circle of like folks who might have something that they want to share. And I'm very grateful that Ramona uh, responded and said yes. This is a pretty vulnerable thing. So um, I want all of us to show lots of warmth and support and encouragement for Ramona. So come on up, Ramona. Good morning, New City. Thank you. Um, My name is Ramona Weller. I use they, them pronouns. Um, And today is the third anniversary of the day of Mother's Day when my, at the time, 19-year-old daughter crawled in my bed between me and my wife in tears to tell me that she was pregnant. Happy Mother's Day, moms. I'm pregnant. And it was very hard for our family in that moment because you want to have so many feelings of excitement and disappointment and confusion um, for all people involved. My daughter was 19, she had graduated from high school, she had just started in a college program, she never, ever, 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 ever wanted children. And so uh, when she came to me, she said, I don't know what to do. I don't know what I want to do. And we told her very clearly that we would support whatever decision she had Um, that abortion was an option and that we would help her to get an abortion if she needed to. If she wanted to carry the baby but didn't want to raise it, we were prepared to help her in the biggest way possible by taking on that child as our child and grandchild. Um, Or that she had the option to, of course, raise the child that she would carry. Now, her boyfriend had not graduated from high school yet and came from a rather conservative Muslim family who, as soon as they found out, told her that she had one option, and that option was to carry that baby. And it took her a long time, up until almost his birth, before she was ready to accept that that was the role that she wanted. Now we have a -a two-and-a-half-year-old grandson who is the light of her life, but it, it was important for me to be able to wrap my head around the fact that Every woman, every person who has the reproductive capability to carry a child has to have the right to control that for themselves. Women get to decide what happens to their body. It does not matter what the religious community says about it. It does not matter what your mothers say about it. It matters what you decide is best for you. And that was really important for us to understand. So at the beginning of 2020, I had a brand new grandson. At the end of 2020, I gave birth to Ebenezer, who is in the back. Ebenezer is 16 months old. He is the most intended, wanted, intentionally created child on the planet of two queer moms that that had to move heaven and earth to try to get a baby into the world. But there was risk involved in that. All pregnancy carries risk to the woman who is uh, the person 
who is carrying that baby. Um, Ebenezer was born seven and a half weeks early because my body decided that it didn't want to carry him any longer. There was a risk that I was going to die and that if I died, um, that Ebenezer possibly could die too. And my wife, in that moment, had to try to decide whether or not she was okay with losing one of us and which one of that would take priority. And for my wife, who had not met Ebenezer yet, even though he was already loved and already a big part of our lives, she would have said immediately, save my wife. Please save the life of my wife, the mother of my four other children. Um, and that had to be okay in that moment. Now, I'm lucky. I had preeclampsia, which is a disorder that in white women is, is a big deal, but, but is, is treatable if you catch it ahead of time. For black women who get preeclampsia and eclampsia, it is twice the rate of death, right? That's not to mention even the status that just being a black woman carrying a baby, you are three times at a higher risk to die in giving birth. Our country does not provide black women with anything that they need medically that looks anything like the best standard of care. So to ask a black woman to carry a baby that maybe wasn't intended or isn't wanted or would tax her body in such a way that it could cause her death is an unfair standard that is not appropriate in a country that should support all of its people. In addition, we already know that if you limit the right to abortion for women, it most adversely affects low-income communities, black and indigenous women, and queer folks, okay? So that being said, one of the big problems in my world about limiting access to abortion is that when there are more babies born than can be cared for, that can be taken care of, when you care more to bring a life into the world but not care for it and be able to provide for it, then you end up putting children into a broken child protection system that does not protect black families, that does not protect indigenous families, that means well and does a terrible job. We need to support the children born into our community, but more importantly, we need to support the women to make their decisions to have those families and then surround those families to care for them. Overturning Roe v. Wade is never going to be a good idea, and I'm grateful that New City supports us having voices to be able to talk about the injustice and to protect the lives of those who are marginalized. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, uh, also, lots of love from the online community as well, Ramona. Oh, that's not an easy thing, y'all, uh, to come up and say that. So thank you so much. Um, thank you. Thank you. Uh, can we as a community just like take in a little bit of what we just heard? Oh, oof. and just kind of like slow exhale, let that mm, mm, really land. I'm so grateful to hear about these themes of um, agency and choice. I'm so grateful to hear about love and the importance of love and family. And um, I just, I, I think that as a community, um, I, I, I'm grateful that New City has the capacity as a community to be able to receive these things. So thank you all. Um, and I, 
I'm going to be preaching on um, some of these, uh, the themes that Ramona brought up. And I also, um, there was another testimony that was written and submitted uh, in community. And so I also wanted to offer that as we're kind of starting our discourse. Uh, okay, community testimony from Emily. I grew up in South Dakota, and there was a big piece of legislation trying to ban abortion that ended up going to public vote in 2006. People came from all over the country to support the abortion ban, some campaigning with graphic images. It seemed like you couldn't escape it. I remember even in the Barnes & Noble parking lot, people had signs with graphic images of who knows what claiming they were aborted fetuses. I was 12 years old and had just gotten my period, so I knew that meant I could technically get pregnant. It led to my first sex talk with my mom about what would happen if I got pregnant against my will and what an abortion ban would mean if that happened. Whether or not my body had autonomy was something I learned to question at a young age. I do not have a personal experience with abortion and I don't want to pretend that my story is the same as those who have. That said, the public spectacle and politicization of a medical procedure takes a toll. And having that start right when my body was maturing was added to my fear that agency over my own body through abortion access, through sex, uh, around sexual assault and fat phobia, et cetera, could be taken away at any moment, at any moment. Um, can we give snaps and support for Emily? This is some heavy stuff, y'all. And, and I don't want to pretend that this is like going to be like, Welcome to New City Church. It's time for sunshine, Enneagram 7 energy, because like sometimes what I've learned from being an Enneagram 7 is that uh, just sunshine and, and opt um, being optimistic can um, brush over something that's important, beautiful, and sacred. Sometimes it's okay to feel upset or sad or hurt or confused because that very like tension that that emotion creates guides you towards a deeper encounter with the divine. So um, I, don't, I don't want this to um, be like kind of a, a overly superficially optimistic um, sermon. And also I want to name for the folks who are visiting us this week that um, this is a particularly important topic that we're engaging with a lot of gravity and also like we, there's a, we engage the whole emotional spectrum at New City Church. So just know that um, uh, there's a lot there. So um, we heard a, a reading about Jeremiah. And I want to say up front before I preach on this that Jeremiah is, uh, that text is not about abortion. It was talking about um, women coming together to mourn. But this text wasn't precisely about abortion. And there's something bad that preachers can do when they take a scripture that sounds like it could be about a thing and then take it out of context and say, well, this is what they're talking about here. Um, that is not, uh, that one of the ethical commitments that I have as a steward of the biblical text is to say like, as uh, from a scholarly understanding what this text is actually about in context to those folks. And so um, Jeremiah is not about abortion. However, basically none of the Bible is about abortion <laughs> because we all, as I already talked about, there's no parts of the Bible that are specifically referring to the same 
a phenomena that we're talking about right now. Uh, back then, there, there was a lot of talks about infanticide. There's a lot of talks of murder. And sometimes murder and abortion get conflated. And I would argue that that is uh, not accurate or helpful in our discourse. Similarly, as an aside, the Bible also um, has maybe 10 to 12 uh, verses that loosely reference homosexuality, but uh, the more we scholarly lean into that, the more we understand that what they're referencing is not actually like a committed loving relationship between people of the same gender over a long course of time in an equal power dynamic. And so it's kind of like, you know, if we're going to be uh, sloppy with our scripture, then we're going to get all into all sorts of messes. And so, like, let's, let's be precise. Let's be clear. Let's be argumentative about what is actually happening here. And, uh, and I want to be clear that Jeremiah is, uh, was written in a context that was talking about... Um, Jeremiah is a prophet, and one of the prophet's jobs is to look out at society and to see how people have forgotten God, and then to proclaim that. And one of the key ways that prophets note that people have forgotten God is whenever they see injustice. Injustice is evidence that people have forgotten the love of God. And so all throughout the prophetic texts, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Habakkuk, Ezra, like all, the, like all these texts that I'm sure all of you read every night um, are like talking about injustice and how injustice is evidence that we have forgotten the love of God. And so the constant call for the prophets is to return to the love of God, return to the worship of God, so that there might be justice in our society. These were like causally related in the imagination of a prophet. And in the book of Jeremiah, he is very particular about the context that uh, he's writing about. Jeremiah is, a, is about grief for a people who are displaced out of their own home. Jeremiah is in this context where uh, he's looking out around his society, he's seeing a lot of injustice and saying, because, of, uh, because we forgot God, we are now seeing all of this injustice in our society, and we are going to be ruined as a nation because of that injustice. In fact, he, he predicted uh, this medical, or <laughs> this military invasion against his own nation. He says, we are going to be invaded and displaced and destroyed because of the injustice that we have allowed in our society. And, and he, Jeremiah is the prophet who weeps. Jeremiah talks a lot about weeping and mourning. And, and the reason why this text comes up is, is because in the book of Jeremiah, uh, uh, he talks so much about mourning that Cole Arthur Riley said, we should look at Jeremiah when we're talking about lament. Um, and so, uh, uh, the book of Jeremiah is saying, like, our society is so broken that we are going to be invaded and we're going to fall and we are going to be um, in a diaspora and that diaspora is going to be so painful for us that we have to train each other how to mourn. And I think that when I read through Emily's testimony and when I hear what you said, Ramona, like, I'm hearing that there's a certain... Um, lack of, or there's a certain robbing of agency, that there's a certain home 
of your own body that you are getting kicked out of. Like I, when I hear the story of people who have uh, uh, ha had to personally experience abortion or have to question around abortion, the real conversation is whether or not a woman or someone who can get pregnant has agency over their body. And, and this is an important spiritual conversation because our bodies are our first spiritual homes. Our bodies are where we first discover like how to feel rooted and happy and loved. It, our bodies are where we encounter God. And our bodies are a pretty important deal in the Christian discourse, so much so that we have a savior who is like, this is my body. <laughs> this is my body during communion. He said bodies are so important that our whole, our whole faith system is going to be organized around the idea that God had a body in the, in the body of Jesus and that by Jesus becoming embodied so we can become embodied. We can discover our first home, the spiritual home where God says you are loved and safe. That is the relationship that all of us are entitled to with our bodies, to feel love and safe, loved and safe by God. And that first primary home is so important that if you are displaced out of that home, you will spend the rest of your life trying to find your way back into that home. If, if you have an experience that takes you away from your body, then a lot of your spiritual energy is going to be trying to bring you back into your body. This is one of the ways that uh, scholars interpret the story of um, the Garden of Eden, by the way. Um, that poetically the Garden of Eden was this place where once people discovered shame, they were kicked out of the garden, but God didn't destroy the Garden of Eden. God kept the Garden of Eden intact so that people can find it again. And so like our, the Edens of our body, the, the garden of our body is something that like we were always intended to discover as, as safe and loving, and yet we have been displaced out of it. And we have to ask the questions, like, what is it that displaces us out of our bodies? What is it that, that drives us out of the very experience that we have within our own body? And the shorthand answer in modern psychology is trauma. Uh, that, that, is a, that is a one way to describe this, but I believe that trauma, uh, the concept of trauma is something that even biblically was talked about without being called trauma. Like there's something that happens when you have like a fight or flight response in your body and somehow that doesn't help you respond to danger that you feel like you are experiencing. That, and, that, and that's kind of what um, Bessel van der Kolk talks about as trauma. Trauma is like when you have that response of like, I got to fight or I got to flee. And then for whatever reason, that fight or flee doesn't help you escape this situation and something scary or bad happens, then you experience trauma. And trauma, in some ways, is trying to help adapt to reality. Trauma's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make sure that you really remember the thing that hurt you. However, like, trauma is meant to be uh, metabolized. Trauma is meant to be like processed through the body and sometimes with trauma it gets stuck and that's when we start to get into lots of things like PTSD, um, post-traumatic stress uh, disorder and, and, and things like that. 
but what I'm trying, so I'm, I'm getting like really deep into <laughs> uh, the body keeps the score stuff right now. But what I'm trying to say to you is that your body is your first spiritual home. And sometimes something happens where your body is like, I'm going to try to rescue you from this scary situation. And sometimes you're not able to get out of that scary situation despite your best intentions. And that is what registers in your body as trauma. And if we don't like start to sort through and deal with our trauma, then we'll never be able to come back to the garden of our bodies. We'll never be able to discover uh, our first home that is most sacred. And so one of the responsibilities of a community of faith is to support each other in our metabolization of trauma. One of the responsibilities of community of faith, and this has always been the case, by the way, this is like thousands of years ago. This was before modern psychology was like, wow, isn't it funny that people who participate in communities of faith tend to have like better health outcomes than, than yeah, better health outcomes around trauma because like there's a place where they are like, they can tell stories and be embraced and have like get in touch with their bodies and sing and like create vibrations. Like, isn't that interesting? Of course, uh, on, on the same note, as a pastor, I also want to name that that is why trauma that occurs in the church is particularly insidious, and that is why we have to particularly repent from trauma that happens in the space of a community of faith, because the community of faith is supposed to be the place where we're metabolizing the trauma, where we're coming back home, and so if we create trauma in the community of faith, then that is a double betrayal, and that's something that we have to continually repent of, right? And and I, I um, as a as a pastoral leader, have really, really uh, co-created a lot of trauma-informed spaces at New City Church, specifically with the intention of creating deeper healing in the world. And so, um, uh, yes, and so, like, we have, have this thing where, like, if we come together and tell a story, if we collectivize and create effective action, if we sing to God and remember our belovedness, then each one of those spiritual practices is one step back home towards the garden. Each one of those spiritual practices is your own homecoming. And when you are in this community, whether you have experienced significant trauma or not, by being here in this community and leaning into the Christian practice, you are allowed allowing your community to continue to deal with and sort through the things that are most hard on their hearts. Uh, thank you for being part of this community. That's what we're here for. However, like a community of faith and a community of a practice can't be the end-all be-all of how we sort through trauma as a society. We need meaningful policy. Communities everywhere, communities that are sorting through trauma, communities that are engaging in all this, have to create policy that affects the governance because policy in itself can be traumatizing. Policy, how we understand our world, can in itself create or prevent trauma on a macro scale. This is something that's really hard for people to feel on a gut level. Because on a gut level, it's easy to be like, this is why you know, it's important for me to get in touch with my emotions, or this is why it's important for me to heal this relationship. And sometimes it's, it feels abstract, especially for folks who are working class. It feels abstract to think about like, what policy actually means in a big meta sense. And so like, just to bring it more personally, like think about policy as our collective agreement as a society for who gets to be traumatized or not. 
Policy is us giving our best uh, options towards who is going to experience trauma or not. Because we know the types of things that, that cause trauma. We know that poverty causes trauma. And so when we create policy that impacts poverty, we are deciding who is going to be experiencing trauma or not. We know that not having food at the table is traumatizing. So when we create food security, you know, you, can, can, are y'all following? Are you tracking what I'm saying? So policy is a matter of our bodies as much as it is a matter of, of written word. And when we create policy, we're trying to say together that we're moving as a society towards a, 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 a understanding of how we belong together that creates less and less trauma in the world. And so the conversation of abortion rights has to be understood from a perspective of bodies, it has to be, un we can't approach abortion rights justice without understanding what is on the line for our bodies and who gets to experience trauma in our society. And so uh, when we're looking at kind of these different uh, voices and weighing this out, uh, folks who are opposed to abortion rights say we are advocating for the unborn, we're advocating for a child who is, um, the, the trauma that they're receiving is, is something that they don't get a, they don't get a, a chance to experience life. That's, that's how kind of that argumentative narrative goes. And the argument from a lot of uh, folks who support abortion rights are like, um, the, the trauma that is experienced by the bodies of people who are pregnant, particularly black women, the poor, undocumented, and queer folks, is so, um, so intensely forgotten in policy that we have to advocate for this really powerfully. And, and the kind of the back and forth is like, how, how are we going to, um, at least rhetorically, the back and forth is, is how we're going to do this. Uh, how are we going to manage the trauma in our society? But... Uh, I've also been doing a lot of research about the role of the evangelical church in the abortion rights history and the role of, and this is just going to be, I, I might sound like a little bit of a shade fairy, okay? We're getting a little bit of a shade fairy alert of the role of the evangelical church. Biblically, I'm just going to name, like, I am uh, uh, continuing the tradition of Jesus and calling out the other religious members of my community whom I consider part of my family for the sake of having like real conversations that are consequential. So let's just, because Jesus was like talking to all the religious officials more than he was even talking about to like the Roman officials, right? He was like, yeah, we got to get our house in order. We got to talk to about this. And so let's just talk for a little bit, right? So like in the, uh, in the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of hubbub among the conservative Christian tradition that realized that they were losing the fight for keeping segregated schools. A lot of the, the pushback uh, against um, integration of schools came from uh, Christian entities, and they realized, especially in the 70s, that that was a fight that they were not going to win. And, uh, and at that point, uh, Catholicism was really the only uh, group of people who were talking about abortion. Chris yeah, sorry, I'm going to stay in frame. Uh, uh, the Catholics were the only folks who were really... Um, advocating uh, against abortion. And in fact, a lot of the Protestant, uh, conservative Protestants said like, uh, we don't like the Catholics, and so we're not going to be talking about abortion because that's kind of a Catholic issue. And there was like this whole thing. This is why JFK was a very controversial presidential figure because he was Catholic. Remember, there was like a big divide. Um, and so like the, um, so the conservative evangelicals 
there were some strategists who were like, okay, this is a really important voting block, and we really, really need to start looking at conservative issues from a moral language, from a moral analysis, because if we can, cons if we can persuade the conservative evangelicals to start voting uh, Republican, then we can start to like, really change the tide and the, and the narrative of the country. And if you look back at the documents, I'm especially thinking of an article in Politico that is tying the links from the moral majority and uh, desegregation movements, if you want to Google it. Um, uh, if you look back at these documents, they're like, uh, if we can convince the moral majority that conservative values are the most moral expression of Jesus Christ, then we can do anything. And this was like, this was like a political strategy, right? Like these were folks who were like outside of the church who were looking at this and being like, wow, this is an important voting block. What can we do? And so abortion arose as a community organizing issue. Um, and it actually initially, um, it wasn't even that galvanizing of an issue. Uh, a lot of the moral majority language around uh, abortion didn't happen until a couple years after Roe v. Wade when Ronald Reagan needed to be elected. And so like, there's like a, uh, there, was, there was this kind of galvanization around abortion that, um, um, you know, like this same campaign tried to galvanize around pornography, around prayer in schools, and somehow in this particular political moment, in that particular way, abortion became like the thing that, that people could galvanize around. And now fast forward, um, you know, what is it, 40 years, 50 years, and like, whether you are pro-life is like one of the identifiers of whether or not you're a real Christian in the conservative evangelical community, right? Like that is like, it's like, do you, are you opposed to gay folks? Are you pro-life? That is like what it means to be, that is the purity test to whether or not you identify as Christian. And I'm not, um, even arguing and saying that uh, like New City Church does not endorse or speak against any particular political party. The Democrats have messed up a lot of this stuff as well, <laughs> okay? In fact, one of the testimonies from, um, uh, from that came in through Circle was like, someone who went to an abortion rights protest here and was so frustrated with democratic response to this because the Democrats were like, well, we already, uh, it won't be banned in Minnesota, so we're fine. And she's like, that is entirely insufficient. And so Democrats, you are not off the hook, but I'm just particularly naming that the, that the history of this particular issue has deeply, is deeply related to, to the collusion of, of the Republican Party and the conservative evangelical church. And if we don't understand the power dynamics that led up to this, then we will never be able to understand how we seek liberation as a community because liberation, like Bell Hook says, does a lot of serious accounting. Liberation and justice require us to have a very precise understanding of what led up to our current circumstance in order for us to find uh, solutions going out. And so I just want to name, like, that was a really important dynamic. And um, I, I think that in a lot of ways, the reason why Christianity has lost so much of our legitimacy on the public stage is because the collusion between conservative evangelicalism and this cause has resulted in a, in a public witness that is completely illegitimate, that does not result in people's liberation, that does not result in, in holiness. And in fact, um, like one of the highest profile anti-abortion violences um, was when an abortion provider, a doctor, an abortion provider, was murdered in his church that he 
the abortion provider worshipped in. <laughs> so it's like when the, the Christian the witness is um, in, entirely colonized by folks who are more willing to murder an abortion provider in their church than the folks who are providing the abortion in and who attend church, like when those folks don't get to set the message of what it means to be Christian, then we're going to get into all sorts of issues. And this is what we have to remain vigilant around. Lastly, I want to name that um, one of the, the folks who responded to Encircle around abortion rights said, I'm, I'm frankly a little uncomfortable because I do believe that there's something sacred that happens when, uh, when there's a fetus that could become life. And I do believe that like this is something that we shouldn't be flippant about like it's not just like getting a a cleaning at the dentist like this is like something sacred and important and i um i also want to affirm like that everything that our <laughs> that goes on in our bodies and maybe perhaps particularly the process of pregnancy is something that is sacred and i think that the um united women of faith which is the united methodist women's uh, organizing group said this really well where they said um, state-coerced motherhood, like state-coerced sterilization, undermines women's ability to carefully discern and follow God's calling in their lives. What we're trying to say is, like, it's not saying that what's the conversation of abortion is something that we can be flippant about or that it's, like, no big deal or the, the way to be a solution of this is, like, just to totally... Um, minimize the, the weight of a certain decision, but rather we're saying this is so important that we are believing that the agency of women's lives is like a really big deal and that that is why we're advocating for these rights because not because it's like some small flippant thing that we're just like, okay, whatever, it doesn't matter. We're saying like, no, 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 this is a big deal and that it is such a big deal. That is why we're advocating for women's rights to uh, be able to uh, carefully discern and follow God's calling in their lives. Uh, Jesus calls the disembodied back home. And uh, whether or not you are particularly uh, uh, affected by abortion rights, whether or not you are particularly affected by this discourse of Roe v. Wade, whoever you are, you are affected by trauma in our society. And you are affected by people who are displaced out of their bodies because of bad policy. And so uh, I invite us as a community to engage in this deeply. I close with a quote from Cole Arthur Riley. I've heard much of bodily sacrifice and of taking up a cross, of dying and dying again, but I need to hear of resurrection, of bodily love, of receiving the Eucharist, which is that moment that Jesus said, this is my body. And so may we, as a community, go forward as people of the resurrection, claiming our embodiment. Amen.